Like turn off the mute. That's a good idea. <laughs> That's a good idea. Thanks. Uh, uh, before we start, Juanita has a, an announcement to make. Okay. Hi. <laughs> Um, many of you know me, but uh, I think around the new year when Donald was leading this group, we did um, some bodhisattva vows, and we got these little bracelets. And my vow was to be brave and take action to protect the environment. That was my vow to myself. And so as a new year has progressed... Uh, it's been a little hard for me to accomplish my vow. And so I am uh, starting a one-hour kind of um, study hour, I guess you can call it like a study hall, on Friday mornings from 7.15 to 8.15. And so I just want to invite anyone who'd like to join me to do it. It'll be by phone. And eventually, we'll have those little pictures where you can see everyone. And the way I envision it is um, taking some moments of silence in the beginning and then having really a quiet work time for about 45 minutes. And then at the end, having another kind of quiet sit together. And during the period of time that we're each working on our own stuff, whatever our own personal action vows are, be it mine, it'll be the environment, it might be social action of some other sort, you just work on your own and do whatever makes sense for you. Maybe it's to read articles, maybe it's to sign petitions, maybe it's to inform yourself on something, and then at 8.15 it will close. So I'm going to put a sign up um, on the table in the back, and if you're interested, just sign up Leave your phone number or your email, and I'll contact you. Thanks so much. Will you stay after class a little bit if people want to come back and talk to you and say what exactly did you mean will work? (laughs) I have a meeting, a phone meeting I have to do right at 12 o'clock today because of this different time that I haven't quite organized my schedule. So I can't be here today, but I'll leave my phone number on the sheet, and you guys can call me if you have questions. I'm really glad to be back. There's a... a so many things I've been eager to talk to you about, and uh, among other things, how many people uh, marched in some sort of a march on Saturday? Louder. Louder? Yeah. This is loud. No, louder. Louder. Louder, Laura. Okay. Here we go. Louder. I want to talk about the marches, and I want to talk about standing up and being counted, and. Uh, about being together with people. Uh, Probably if I had two things to say about what I wanted to talk about today, I would say I am going to talk about, I'm going to start or end or both with talking about um, how Ananda said to the Buddha, or is said to have said to the Buddha, is it true that noble friends are half the holy life? And the Buddha is said to have responded, no, it's not true. Noble friends are the whole of the holy life. 
So I want to talk about that, coupled with Thich Nhat Hanh saying a number of years ago, the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha. And I'm going to interpret Sangha as the, in the largest possible way as being, uh, in the days of the Buddha, the Sangha was uh, the group of ordained uh, renunciates that practiced with the Buddha. I think of the Sangha now as being all of the people who in one way or another uh, are, um, are feeling the way I am about being in the world and being roused to make a, a, a positive difference in the world. So I'm thinking about those two things and thinking about how they relate to spiritual practice, to being here, to mindfulness meditation, all of those things. And the other thing I'd like to think about is uh, thinking in a new way. I've been thinking about that. I've been reading about it. By the way, who is here who has never been here before? What's your name? Rhoda, where do you live, Rhoda? I'm glad you came. And I'm glad it's a sunny day to come. Welcome, come anytime. Who else is new? Lonnie, welcome. Yeah. Who else hasn't been here before of a Wednesday morning? There you are. What's your name? Catherine. Where are you from? I'm from Oh, okay. okay. Sometimes people are, are just passing through and they come from really interesting people, places, just Marin, huh? Okay. <laughs> Who else is just here for, t- yeah? Okay. I was in the Oakland March on Saturday. Were you there, Amara? You were in Santa Rosa. You were in Oakland. I thought you'd be there, Susan. I was sure you'd be there. I was there. So I was walking with the East Bay Meditation Center. Who else was there? Yeah. You were in Oakland. Who else? And it's your birthday. Today? Happy birthday. Who else has not been here before? Mary. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I'm Sarah from Valley. I'm glad you're here. I'm always interested in how come people came today of all days, but it doesn't matter where you came, so there you are. What's your name? Jackie. I'm from Piedmont. Glad to see you. And I'm Gary from Oakland. Oakland. Were you there on the marching on Saturday? No. Who else is there? I'm Devil, and I'm from Santa Rosa. Uh-huh. Was it raining on you? Yes. yes. That, um, my son was there marching. He said it was cold and it was raining. Yes. <laughs> A lot of men were marching, yeah. I'm Oh. Are you staying here? Are you staying here for a while now? So welcome. I'm glad you're here. And so somebody else. Yeah. I'm glad you're here too. Welcome to everybody. Um, 
before we sit, I'm I'm uh, I'm always aware of Amara is not here. Oh no, you are here. You are here. She's in a different seat. So if I was going to say, if Amara were here, she would say, what would you say? It would be great to meet our neighbors. It would be great to meet our neighbors. So we always have to remember to, we don't always have to, but when you're not here, I always remember. Amara might be here, and she would say, let's take a minute to say hello to the people around us, especially the people who have just come and welcome them and encourage them to be here again and all of that I do, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> one of the things that happens, one of the things that happens, those people who have been on retreat know that uh, a retreat on the top of the hill where people come and, and stay for some period of time, is they come and they meet people. Usually they come in the mid-afternoon, they meet people, some people just being around, and then they have dinner with people and talk to them. And then they first meet as, <coughs> as a group in the meditation hall in the evening, and there's people agree together to undertake a period of silence. And then for a period of... Uh, five days or ten days or two weeks or a month, in some cases two months, they don't talk to anybody the whole rest of the time and they don't look at them or interact with them. They talk to a teacher every other day and say, this is what's going on in my life, and uh, in my meditation life, and they get some instruction. But they just walk around very self-contained for the whole time and sit there very quietly. They don't really look at each other. They know everybody knows who's there, but they don't appear to be noticing who's there. They do it discreetly, I think. But then at the end of the retreat, when we end the time of not talking anymore, we, we do that in a formal kind of a way because it is a ritual vow of during this time that we practice together in order to practice uh, in a way that's very... Um, very intentionally uh, uh, a single person practice. 
they suddenly get uh, uh, the opportunity to talk to each other. And we usually uh, do something on the next to the last or the last day before we end. So some way of greeting each other and talking in a way that uh, allows them to move from silent community into talking community. What I've done in the last few years is I've always given out a copy of the uh, Buddha's teaching on... um, uh, unconditional kindness, uh, the metta sutta, because I think it, you know if you're going to start talking, you might as well talk about something really elevated, like holy literature. Really, if you're going to start in, you don't have to start in on what are you going to do for your summer vacation. You can really start in on something pithy that that it's kind of nice to end the silence on. But uh, whatever. I mean, we give out the, the, the sermon and people are looking at it and then they start to talk to each other and they get very um, animated about it. And it's a wonderful opportunity to sit up here or wherever we are and suddenly look at all these people who for all those periods of time have looked like there's nobody home, you know. They're just self-contained, just they're quiet and, and all of a sudden they're animated they're moving their hands and they're smiling and they're talking and they're making conversation. And then when you ring the bell, nobody listens, they keep on. And you realize it's a really lovely feeling to think all these people are actually alive. You know, that they're actually somebody in there who's doing that. It's quite a lovely moment. So I'm glad that we did that. We do it when you're not here, Amara. We do it in your name when you're not here. So one thing that I, that I really do want to talk about is um, the business of the next Buddha's, the Sangha, and um, uh, I, I think the, uh, the t- Larry Yang, who's a, a colleague of mine here and a good friend, has a book that's coming out um, sometime in this year, I think around the summertime, that's called Awakening Together. So uh, really talking about Noble friends, um, not only noble friends are a support, but I've really come to think about the fact that looking at other people and meeting them and really knowing their lives and really listening and looking around is really the, a, a practice that we haven't talked a lot about. Oh, I want to talk about that later. I also want to talk about um, thinking outside the box. Uh, this might be a, a fun way to start to sit quietly. Um, this is a poem by Robert Bly. Think in a way you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, may be wounded and deranged, or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down for a while, no one will die. I was hoping that you'd laugh. I get a kick out of that. I carry it around with me. People have discovered that if they laugh before they 
sit to meditate, or if they think about a kindness that they have recently done, or a kindness that someone has done to them, that they report their meditation session as being more comfortable and more rewarding. I'd like to uh, make the suggestion that we begin to sit quietly with our eyes closed after we've looked around quietly and looked at the people quietly. Don't have to recognize them or talk to them. We just talked. Just look at them. Look around at all the people, different shapes, sizes, ages, colors. Everybody's got a story. I think about what if we could see in the bubble over people's head, the little bubbles coming down to their mind, what's going on in their minds at this point, who's got... who's got delight, who's got worry, who's got what? Some, everybody's got something in their bubble. And you figure that you've looked a lot, then close your eyes. I've been very interested in all the different ways in which people give instructions for mindful awareness. Sometimes, perhaps most often, it includes some reference to breathing because when we sit quietly and don't move, then what becomes most prominent is the breath. Sometimes people imagine that mindful attention is inextricably linked with breath, but breath is one of the techniques I'll mention it in just a minute, but I like to start with myself with the uh, with this invitation. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is its natural peace and ease. The mind and body assume its natural peace and ease. Say that way. Anything arises in the mind that disturbs that peace and ease. As you notice it, say to yourself, relax. It's okay. The safe moment. Discover that by and by what's most apparent to you is the feeling of the body as breath goes in and out. Then rest in those feelings of breath in and breath out. You don't need to do anything about making breathing happen. 
It happens all by itself. Sometimes a longer breath, sometimes a shorter breath. Of itself. That's quite consoling when the mind is agitated or overtired. and relax and use the breath when it's pleasant for you to do that to keep a level of alertness in the mind and pleasure really trustworthiness of the next breath
quietly together a little while. We're moving towards when we'll come together as a talking together community. Set aside now this end of our sitting together for a time when people might want to uh, mention people that they're thinking about for reasons um, because they're in some special place in their life because they're having some time of transition or time of difficulty or time of some rite of passage. Mostly people find that when they've been sitting quietly for a while, and uh, I find that when I've been sitting quietly for a while, that my mind, when it relaxes, starts to think about people that I uh, particularly have in my heart and mind. mentioning them into the space. My friend, my friend Mary uh, has just left being in a rehab facility to go back to her home at the Dominican convent after sustaining a really bad fall.
Maybe before I ring the bell, uh, we could um, end uh, by opening our eyes and looking around the same way we did before at everyone who has shared our space, both our, both our space of contemplation and our space of mentioning our shared thoughts. May everyone that we've mentioned and everyone that we thought about and didn't mention and everyone else that maybe almost thought about and all of us here and all of us, that all the people that we're connected to and that they're connected to, may all people everywhere feel like people are concerned about them and people care about them, hold them in their heart and may we feel as well that we are held by everyone's heart so that not alone in this life. All beings be at ease. I like that looking at each other before closing the eyes. You like that? Well, we try it a little bit and see before it becomes a rule. But usually we like the rules, you know. We we took on the rule of the talking. I'm, I'm quite sure that Ace isn't here today, and I'm sure that Ace has a rule that we forgot. What was Ace's rule that we're supposed to... That we're supposed to do. Meet the new people, say hello and visit. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to talk about um, for today was the idea that we might, I might, I have been thinking in new ways. As I, I read that, I looked for that Robert Bly poem, I remembered it from having read it some months ago, about how, expect something different. Doorbell's going to ring and it's going to be a wounded bear, or, you know, that, or a moose rising out of the lake, or someone bringing you a piece of news. I quote Susan Felix frequently here, and for those of you who didn't didn't until this moment know Susan Felix, here is Susan Felix in her very Susan Felixness today, Um, because Susan is the only person I know. I think she has people get a what do you call it when you get a .dot com and it's yours, a site name or a domain name. Her domain is a is an automatic signer on emails. And she signs the emails, stay amazed, Susan. And uh, if she didn't have it already, I would covet it. But I don't, you know, so I've given up coveting it because she has it. But I think it's actually a tremendous, uh, it's a tremendous injunction. Think bigger than this. 
as a way of not don't think about this, but think bigger than this so we can really have some new ways of meeting the future effectively. So this is what I've been thinking about. I'll tell you a whole bunch of things that came up in my mind. I had thought about starting with a poem. I'm glad I did, about expect something else. Challenge old ideas that you've had. I've been thinking about that. I wanted very much to talk about the, the marches on Saturday, those that you didn't go to or wished you had gone to or were at or thought about. I, I really uh, felt it was an extraordinary experience to go. I went to Oakland, by the way, so just to tell you something of my personal time. I went to Oakland with my husband and uh, my, uh, my younger daughter and her husband, and we drove to Ashby Avenue to the BART station there because we figured it wouldn't be a good idea to drive all the way to Lake Merritt that we probably couldn't park the car. So we'd leave the car there. So we parked right across from the BART station. And uh, we, f- we actually found the BART station because we saw people coming down all the, all the streets aiming towards the BART station. So look at all those people with backpacks all aiming in the same direction. There must be a BART station there. And we go down in the BART station and it's full of people, most of them with pink bunny hats, uh, pussy hats, pussy hats, pink pussy hats, which I hadn't known about. I mean, there were, there, were, there were instructions on the internet. Had I but known, I could have knitted a pink... Did you knit? Ah, Susan has a pink pussy hat. There you go. I made the pin. You made the pin. Okay. But there you go. So you must have the instructions, Susan. I'll see you later about the instructions. Or I'll download them. But everybody had pink pussy hats. Uh, mostly everybody. Not me, but mostly everybody. Only because I didn't have... And so we come down there, and the lines and lines of people getting tickets, and we descend to where the train is going to come in. And people might have been thinking, but we weren't, that when the train came in, it was already impossibly full. You see a train come in, and it looks like it's going to explode with people in it. And when the doors open, actually a few people explode out, because, you know, the, the force of the people. But then they push themselves back in, and one or two people get in with them. Is already exploding out. And then it closes, and then they announce after that, that that trains are being rerouted, and trains come through that don't even stop because they are so full up. So then everybody is changing information with each other. People who are more familiar with BART and the stations are saying, "Well, don't take that. Don't worry about that. We'll take the train that's going to 12th Street. It's a different train, but." It's not so far from Lake Merritt will walk. So a train opens. Also, it's quite full. We get in. And we, we get in and get in and get in and get in until people are really like this. And the, were you there in that train? Or like this. I'm standing in the middle like this. You can't reach up because you're in the middle. You can't reach the, uh, the, the hanger, the thing, to, the, stra- the strap to hang on. Because I'm not sure I could reach it. But next to me is another woman about my size. She said, we'll be all right, you know, because you can't fall down. You really can't fall down. It's like this. I thought to myself, well, this would not be a good place for people who have um, phobias about being in tight places. But it might have been all right because the mood was so not 
raucous. The mood was so uh, benign. It wasn't like a quiet, I mean, people were talking, but there was no sense of any kind of direness or dread, no anger, just people who were determined to go to Lake Merritt and stand up. So we got to, we got to uh, the nearest station, we walked to Lake Merritt. We were looking for uh, Michael Lerner, uh, Michael Lerner, who had uh, sent out on, on, the, uh, on the email the day before a notice that he was going to hold Saturday morning religious services at a certain corner uh, in the park where we all met. It was impossible to find anybody. There was a zillion people there. I found Donald, actually. Donald, we were just milling around, trying, trying to mill. There was not much of a mill that you could do. But, but I, I found Donald. He is tall, yeah. And uh, a couple of other people that we stood with. But it was coming on 11 o'clock by that point. And 11 o'clock, they said, okay, it's 11 o'clock. And somewhere there was a marching band with uh, brass that you could hear that began to play. We said, oh, good, we're going. I took my first step at 10 minutes to noon. It was so crowded with people, and they were all around this whole big square block and filling the whole thing, that by the time they funneled out one one street, it was an hour later. There was no pushing and shoving. It was just full of people. People had signs, mostly pinned on them because you weren't supposed to bring a sign that could be a weapon, but the signs were benign. They didn't say vicious, nasty things. They said um, and, uh, an end to racism, an end to all the isms, uh, men supporting women, sisters united. They said lovely things. Uh, can you remember any of the other things they said? Akia builds better cabinets. <laughs> oh, that's actually quite funny. <laughs> Ikea builds better cabinets. That's a little mean-spirited, but it's actually quite funny. And it was around the corner from Ikea, so... (laughs) I didn't see that one. What were you going to say? Old hippies just get their... (laughs) Actually, I heard that. (laughs) I heard a similar story from friends of mine in Philadelphia who recently, not on this march, but on the march before, whenever that was, manifested in Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago for another cause. And they are, in fact, old hippies. And my friend who reported it to me said, there we were, all of us, said we were, and we, we felt it, you know, we're out again in the same cause, but our spirit is the same. She said, the only thing we didn't notice since 30 years ago is that we got old in the meantime. And it's hard to stand so long. <laughs> and it's cold. But here we are, old hippies. Actually, a lot, a lot of young people. And a lot of children. Uh, Will Kabat-Zinn, who's one of the teachers here. Did you see Will at the march? Will was at the march, and his five-year-old son was sitting on his shoulders uh, as they marched along. And I thought, this is how... Sometimes people come to a class and they say, how can I get my children interested in mindfulness? I think what they mean is how can I be sure that my children are being uh, 
directed in in terms of kindness and awareness of other people and serving humanity and uh, developing love and compassion. And I think that the answer to it is you take them with you as you take socially, uh, um, what would I call it, progressive stances, like all people count. Those were the, what it said on, on all those signs, all people count. What? I actually, there were lots of young girls carrying signs. I was very pleased about that. Lots of people, I was touched at the young people who were there with their mothers and fathers often. I was also touched at how many uh, people who you might think of in the category as disabled were there, that somebody else brought them. I was walking along next to a woman who was walking her... um, grown up but clearly disabled child you could tell and holding her arm firmly and walking her towards the towards the march place and other women pushing other women in wheelchairs and I thought this is really this is really where I want to be I want to be with people who have kindness on their mind there was a uh, someone told me that Gloria oh who was it Gloria Steinem who was marching in Washington D.C said that during the march she got a uh, uh, text from friends of hers in Berlin who had marched in Berlin, and the text was, Walls do not work. <laughs> and I, I had written that on the top of my paper here when I started to think about what I was going to talk about today. That walls do not work, the kind of walls were, the kind of wall between here and Mexico, which is just such a... Anyway, walls do not work, especially the walls that kept being built, keep being built in people's minds, walls between people, walls that said, this is us and this is them, not we are inhabiting a world that is heating up every day and won't last another hundred years in any habitable way unless everybody gets around to fixing it soon. And we'll all be people riding on this, riding on this spaceship around the... Around the sun. I had never thought about that before. My husband just passed his 85th birthday. And somebody said, oh, see, now you've just embarked on your 86th trip around the sun. And I thought, whoa. You know, when you think about that, that seems like a big thing, you know. I just saw that movie. What's the movie? Hidden Figures. Did you see Hidden Figures? Run to see Hidden Figures. Who thinks so? It was a fabulous movie about the people who did the, the, uh, the science and the math that got the space program going. You see what a big deal it was for somebody to go out of the atmosphere and come back. And here we are, flying around in our local atmosphere. He's on his 86th trip around the sun. That's a lot.
How are we going to think in new ways? I read a review of a book yesterday called Days Without End. Did you read that? It's a book that is by Sebastian Barry, and it just got as recently published, and it got listed for all kinds of prizes. You know, I'm never sure what those prizes are, but it says shortlisted for the this prize and the that prize and the other prize. Anyway, shortlisted for a lot of prizes, and uh, it's a story about two men who meet each other as boys in the period, it said, between the the Civil War and Indian Wars. I never knew they were called Indian Wars. Anyway, period in that time, so uh, 150 years ago, almost, and uh, who become friends and... uh, the particular line that I thought, they become friends as children and they grow up and uh, they're, they're really the closest of buddies. And uh, in the review it says, uh, uh, and one of them discovers that the other is really uh, the love of his life. And uh, as, as a game, when they're together, or not as a game, he dresses as a as a woman, and said, uh, and uh, often they entertain. They had a job entertaining both of them, dressing as women, and entertaining um, cowboys in the far west uh, by dancing with them in saloons. They in, and that at some point in their trip together, they uh, adopt a child who's an orphaned Sioux child, Indian child native child and they said well we're an unusual family but uh, that's part of the text but then it says one of the people says one of these two men says to the other but I am after they've adopted this girl and they're living together he says I am as peaceful and easy now as I ever been fears fly off and my box of thoughts feels light I just love that idea that we have a box of thoughts. Now, did you ever think that your mind is a box of thoughts? Because my box of thoughts feels light. Anybody here feels like their box of thoughts feel light? I feel very much like my box of thoughts has gotten stuffed with, with outrage and slogans. I, I, that, this might be my place to confess that I broke my vow and I watched a little cable TV yesterday. I am very resolved. So I'm making a public confession. I'm very resolved not to do that again because it's a terrible thing to do because it revs up. Um, even that I agree with the station that I turn on. They have the same view that I do, but they have it with a tone of relentless indignation and really anger. And I find that it's not good for me. I don't sleep well. Anybody feels that way or I'm particularly delicate or peculiar? It's not good for you. It gets listenership, but it's not good. Each of us have to find a way to keep, uh, I I think, we don't each of us, that's preachy to say it that way. I have felt, (laughs) I am very tuned to people giving a talk anywhere, starting with we. Forget it. I find that it doesn't work for me to watch so much. (laughs) 
I find a lot of things don't work for me. They might work for other people, but I really don't. I really want to be careful also about. So, by the way, I ordered that book. And in the way of Amazon, which is another thing I want to think about supporting so heavily. But anyway, in the way of Amazon that delivers the book as you're typing, typing you know, <laughs> when, you finish, when you push send, the UPS truck drives up. <laughs> it's been lurking in your driveway, <laughs> waiting to deliver the book or at the foot of your driveway. Cruising around Kenfield, waiting for me to push send. It'll be there today, and I'll read it, and I'll tell you about it when I'm back. Because it seems very touching. They said touching in the way that Brokeback Mountain was, that it really changed your mind. Of the book, Days Without End. The, 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 I, I like that idea of the box of thoughts because the last time we were here together, do you remember the last time we were here together and we were talking about what have you changed your mind about in your life? And a variety of people said, I used to believe da-da-da, but now I believe I've changed my mind. I actually have... Uh, I, I'm pretty careful, I think, I hope, not to say I believe because it... it I don't know. Uh, uh, it's just a complicated word since I've believed a lot of things that I don't resonate to anymore. To say it seems to me as if, you know, it seems to me now that one of the things that it seems to me about is that some of the reasons that uh, I've associated with why should we meditate, to move them around a little bit. I would have given a different talk on this topic ten years ago, maybe five years ago. I want to talk about one other book I've been reading recently about changing your mind. And then I'll tell you what I'm changing my mind about. See, I'm holding off the heresy until the end of the until the end of the hour. Maybe I'll change my mind by then. Uh, but you know the thing about the thing about Oakland was I was surrounded all the time by people who were warm hearted and pleasant. At one point, uh, my daughter had a plastic bag of uh, uh, nuts and raisins. So she offered some to you know, me, and I took some, my family took some, and I offered it to somebody next to us, and so they passed it on to other people, and other people passed around snacks. The snacks were not... Well, the snacks were brought to the event by individual people, but by and large, they seemed to make their way into the whole group. I thought that's what it is. When a group is together, you, you reach over into the next family and give them your snacks, and they give you their snacks, and they hold the other hand of your child who's you know holding here, but otherwise in the crowd. They hold the other hand so the child is walking easily. I watched how people were taking care of each other. I thought this is how the world could be with people who are not confused. Everybody, people, I would say they weren't asleep, and they weren't contemplative, but they weren't confused. Everybody had an idea that, and clarity about it that they wanted to make a statement about what they were in favor of. No racism, no sexism, no genderism, no anythingism, no is, an end to isms, a peaceful world, whatever it said. 
I do like the one about Ikea's cabinets, but I'm leaving them out. <laughs> I've been reading a book. Uh, it's not such easy reading, but it's very, it's very surprising. Uh, and I'm working my way through it. I'm not done with it yet. Um, I mentioned it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I was here the last time. This is called The Undoing Project. And it's by Michael Lewis, who wrote the book Moneyball. And Michael Lewis uh, is writing about two men named um, Amos Tversky and Danielle Kahneman, who are two Israeli physicists who are working on talking about how we make up our mind. When we think something is true and we're sure it's true, it might not be true that the way we decide we make decisions that seem like so reasonable, but they turn out not to be true. And to begin to check my own mind about what, this is in keeping with our last discussion about what, do you, what did you used to believe that you now think, oh, what were some of the things that people said I used to believe? Somebody said I used to believe that um, it wouldn't be right for two men to adopt a girl baby. He said, I don't believe that anymore. And everybody else said, yes, we don't believe that anymore either. Somebody else said, what? Um, things that at one point people would have said, no, 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 no. But then they said, no, that, that, that's really not true. Susan. Um, I used to believe I had to be in a carpool The driver's fine. And, okay. and I also used to believe that the fact that this class met from 9 to 11 was set in stone, just because we've been doing it for 20-some years like that. But it's not set in stone. We just did it that way for 20-some years until Susan said, I can't come anymore. And Donald said, I can't come anymore because I have to leave too early from Berkeley. So we just changed it. And <laughs> no, never mind. I don't want to say this on the tape. <laughs> It changed very quickly. That was a great thing. So I want to talk about making up... A, oh, here's it like a test about... They, they tell about some of these tests to see how people make up their mind. Uh, they would read a group of people, the, the test groups, and they'd read them a group of men's and women's names. And there's another group of people, and they do the same test with lots of groups. And uh, in each case, the list of names, they changed the list of names, but the list of names would have more, uh, more of one gender than of the other. Uh, it was like 20 names and 18 and 22, or so close to even, but not even. And then they'd have to, after they'd read it, were there uh, more men or more women? The, the, the bulk of the responses was there were more X when in each case the X that was chosen actually had less people but people with well-known names Gloria Steinem uh, Hillary Clinton uh, that uh, the men when they said the men had more names more men were listed there were less men listed, but they had important names. So, you see, you know, that one thing that you say, I, I saw it, I saw it myself. 
he didn't, you know, I heard it. I was counting. We don't judge exactly. I read the last time I was here, I read about uh, the, uh, the, the figuring over the, the, the choosing of basketball players in the NBA. Do you remember about that? Were you here when I was talking about that? Anyway, it explained the whole beginning of the book, talks about Moneyball, which is about basketball and how they, how they, how they figure out first draft, second draft. I didn't get all that business, but now I get a little bit of it. That apparently you get to choose, the teams get to choose. And when it's your turn to choose, you get to choose from who's out there and the draftable people, and you take this one, this one, this one, this one. They overlooked in the draft a man named Yao Ming. Yao Ming was seven foot four. He had he had played amazingly well. People had seen him play. It wasn't like he was brought in from someplace else. Been playing for a whole season. There were clips of him. People had seen him. Seven foot two, four. Did everything great. He was overlooked until the sixty fourth draw on the draft. And he was overlooked clearly because he's Asian, he's Chinese, and no one ever saw a Chinese basketball player. And they couldn't somehow put those two things in their mind and overlook his, his uh, ethnic heritage. So he's, he was then second in the NBA that year in performance when he was 64th draft because they couldn't see past... They didn't notice him. There's another very famous um, research test that was done also using basketball players where people were asked to um, uh, notice whether the... uh, It was something about the game that they were supposed to watch 15 seconds of a certain game or 20 seconds, a video clip of a certain game to say how many... uh, assists into the basket happened during that time, something like that. And during that 15 seconds, uh, a person wearing a gorilla costume came onto the court and ran in and out among the players. And nobody noticed or commented on the fact that the person in a gorilla costume was running around on the court because they're so busy counting the assists into the basket. So here it is, and I've seen the. Have you seen the little video clip of that? It's amazing. I was talking to somebody about it the other day, and they said that not only that, they also didn't see in the video clip that the background color changed when the uh, man in the gorilla suit came running on. That I don't know what it went from X to Y, but they were so busy counting that they didn't see that. I began to think, what do I not tell myself or what do I not let myself know that I should have been thinking, uh-oh, how about that? But it doesn't fit with my other, uh, the, the other things that I've come to know. There's the one more, this is, sort of, this is actually a very hard to listen to one. In the beginning of the book Night by Elie Wiesel, how many people read Night? by Elie Wiesel. So it's a very, very um, terrifying, really, uh, account of Elie Wiesel's experience of being, I think, 14 or 15. 
Do you know, John, how old he was? 14, 14 or 15, when he was uh, rounded up with his family and uh, interned in a concentration camp. He ultimately, of course, lived and wrote about it. And uh, A Night was his first book, I think. Um, but um, he talks about in the beginning of the, uh, the, the war happening in 1938, 39, there were people coming back to his town in Poland and um, the people who had left and then came back and they would say, listen, people, Jews, get out of here. Some terrible things are happening, beginning to happen with Jews. You have to leave. Who all said, no, that can't happen. We won't get that, Like that, in this book over here, it says, this is this current book, that people cannot believe a story if it hasn't already happened, if there's no precedent for it, and it's unimaginable, you can't imagine it. Stories that people told themselves, um, this is what these two physicists say, are biased by the material available to construct them. Images of the future are shaped by experiences of the past. What people remember about the past, they suggested, is likely to warp their judgment to the future we often decide that an outcome is extremely unlikely or impossible because we were unable to imagine any chain of events that could cause it to occur. The defect often is in our imagination. The rules confine people's thinking. The rule, it's, it's far easier for a Jew living in Paris in 1939 to construct a story about how the German army will behave much as it had behaved in 1919, for instance, than to invent a story in which it behaves as it did in 1941, no matter how persuasive the evidence might be that this time things are different. If you can't imagine it, then you can't imagine it. And how will we have minds ever... This is very interesting. I've been thinking and thinking about that because for the last couple of weeks, this is a place where I am now wandering into what I don't know, but I'm thinking about. I've been saying, people have been saying, how you manage to keep yourself going? How come you're not distraught? Well, I am actually quite, I don't know if I'm distraught, I'm very worried. Um, and I, on the one hand, I want to say, uh, let's see what happens next. Let's see what happens next. It's a very good idea that rather than terrify, become terrified and not be able to see clearly and plan clearly and know this is what we should do next that will be effective, like make a tremendous uh, walk together with... Do you know how many... They said almost 4 million women worldwide were walking. If you go online, you'll see images of everybody in all those walks all over the world. Four million women walking. It's hard to imagine that anything dire that hasn't happened yet will happen. How could that happen? 
But it's worrisome to think, you know, that we just maybe don't have the imagination to do that. And uh, how will, let's see what happens next, get replaced by, uh uh-oh, this is happening next. And what should we do now? And how will that get affected? There are things that I've been thinking about. Wait, Susan, because I'm going to tell you the end of this thought. Because there are things I used to believe. You know how... I'm sure you know how. Um, Let's start with this. They got to be a very big interest in meditation and contemplation and uh, in the 1970s in this country. Uh, It was in the 1970s, particularly if the 1960s were the time that uh, was the era of being tremendously interested in changing one's mind with the use of uh, medicinal. Uh, People joke about that. They said, I did some chemical experiments on altering the mind. I'm looking around at at the age of everybody in this room. Probably people have some passing experience with chemical, chemical means of changing the mind. Uh, and then in the 70s, people used to say, uh, began to say, no matter how high you could get on a drug, uh, you couldn't stay high. But hey, meditation, you could get high and I think presumably stay high, which I remember Ramdas saying, uh, the, you know, whatever drug you took and you get high from it, you have all these amazing uh, intimations of the oneness of all, if that's the intimation that you hope to have anyway, that it'll pass. And when he said that, he said it'll pass. And uh, however, meditation is something that you can safely done, do. And I think that what people did, myself as well, I think, for a while, as I understood that as meaning, that the point of meditation was that, first of all, we couldn't stay taking drugs, and second of all, that high is what you wanted to be. And the other thing that people, somebody asked me this the other night, which really started a whole chain of thinking. Somebody said, have you met a lot of enlightened people in your life? So it was a very, you know, it was an, I was giving a talk in Oakland, uh, on uh, in on on Sunday night, so it was not part of the march. It was at some group in Lafayette, actually. And someone said, uh, "How how many enlightened people have you met?" And you you know, and I really talked about. I began to talk about the fact that I'm not sure what enlightenment means. And there was a time when we just talked about enlightenment like we all knew what it meant and we wanted it and that somehow it was a good thing to have without ever saying, what exactly do you think is going to be how we are when we're enlightened? And I think we had a, a, a whole variety of ideas about it, like, uh, well, you tell me, what did, what, did, what did you think it was going to be? Suffering. Free from suffering is actually... That, that's like where I want to go with this because the suffering that they're talking about is the suffering of personal ego worries and a personal imperative that things have to be different. And I still think that freedom from suffering is actually a possibility 
for human beings in all circumstances. Uh, not freedom from pain, but freedom from suffering. But not freedom from, not freedom from extreme grief or sadness. Uh, actually, that, that would, that would, if I were going to have that, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to have that if, because I think there's a, there are things that are grievous in the world and I want to be sad about them and roused up to do something. At my current, because I went home from this meeting and I thought, wow, what do I think about enlightenment? I actually wrote to myself, I think we're enlightened-ish, that we're on, the, we're on the right kind of a path to think about it, that when we say, well, who was enlightened? Um, I think Gandhi was a good, was an example of what I'm thinking about. I didn't, and I, you know, I'm not a great Gandhi scholar, but Martin Luther King, people who had a suddenly a great idea about it could be different and it should be different from how it is. It could, it should be, and it could be, and I'm going to do something about it. That um, I don't know if it's exactly, I, you know, I know about Gandhi from the movie. But in the movie, he goes to South Africa. He sees how people whose skin is darker than other people's skin are not treated properly. And all of a sudden, he's aroused to social injustice. And he goes back to India and changes his life and makes a very big difference in the world. And Martin Luther King, who also was impressed with the work of Gandhi. And everybody who realizes things should be different and could be, and I'd like them to be. Dorothy Day. Um, who else? You want to, in our time? Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt. Who? Rachel Carson. Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela. Something isn't right, and I am moved to rouse up people to make a difference about that. And there's something that isn't right. I'm, I'm just thinking about Rachel Carson. I'm so happy that you thought about her because I'm thinking about something isn't right is that some people are not getting treated well. At the, people are living in a certain way at the expense of other people not living that way. I had reason the other day to be in a conversation with somebody where I remembered Gandhi saying, before you do anything... Think about how your action that you're about to do now will affect the poorest person on earth. So you think, well, you know. But, you know, I think that's like the Bodhisattva vow that says, I am vowing not to continue in my life until there is no more suffering anywhere. I don't think it means that all beings are ended in the suffering. I don't think it means you individually visit each being or whatever. It means that I'm going to use all of my strength to have it um, not to have a world where some beings don't profit at the expense of others. Does that make sense to you? Am I making complete? Is this nonsense or is my is this reasonable? I have to have a little feedback so I know where I'm going here. You know why this happened the other day? I was teaching in this class in East Bay. And I got to tell two stories that I haven't told in a long time and that have to come up in a certain way to be important to tell. Um, I was saying that uh, 
Maybe it was apropos of uh, what are we, why are we practicing? What's the end of what we're practicing? I'll tell you in case this is where I'm going to get to. I want to be aroused when I talk about awakened. I want to be awakened by suffering, by recognizing that everybody, not only the people who are in suffering from injustice and um, all the all the inequities of the world, but actually all the people in the world, because we are all suffering. Just by being alive, we're suffering because of all the, the natural losses of being alive. I want to be aroused in order to, uh, to, to the degree of suffering in everybody, including us, in order to be available to respond and to somehow respond with compassion. Because it's that that I think makes connection, leads to connection, that makes me feel alive in this world. I think that's it. That's the whole of it. That I think for those of us who were out on the march on, on Saturday, it didn't feel lonely. It didn't feel like we're the only people in the world. It didn't feel like... Somebody asked me Sunday, they said, do you think the world is going to get changed in time to not melt or in time to really preclude any tremendous catastrophes in the world? I said, I don't know, but if it doesn't make it this world in any habitable way, and I'm around, I'd like to be among those people who are the consolers. I'd like to be among those people who are taking care of other people. It's a better way to be at that point. I was thinking, John, I hadn't forgotten, till, I hadn't remembered until this moment that you went to New Orleans. A minute or two about the New Orleans. I'm sorry to call on you out of the blue. I hadn't thought about the New Orleans. There's a person right behind you with a, a microphone. It just appeared out of the blue. <laughs> Just like that. Just, I hadn't thought about it until just like um, that. Besides, behind you is my other friend, John, who just went to Greece and helped people get out of boats. The experience in New Orleans back in 2005 was uh, to witness uh, how... Um, actually, uh, Rebecca Solnit reframed it for me, that there is no such thing as a natural disaster. It is the inattention of, of people towards other people that leads to uh, their suffering because we didn't pay attention. And uh, the awareness of how, how um, our, our willingness or our ignorance of others uh, allows for their deeper and deeper suffering and how hard it is to wake up from that in order to care for and protect others. Did you go with the Red Cross? Or how, was you, how was it that you went? I was working with um, disaster chaplaincy services in New York, which formed, uh, was in the process of formation in 2001 before uh, September 11th and continued to serve people in different contexts in the New York area uh, of, of disasters of various sorts, uh, plane crashes and uh, massive fires. And then through the Red Cross went there to work. Uh, we were doing um, 
we were, we were with, with the teams collecting bodies as they were found in the, in the different places. And the other, the other reason, the other thing I'd like you to talk about just briefly, because I often, or at least sometimes, come to mention it, is the time that you spent in that uh, post nine eleven. Uh, gathering center with the green vests. I think about the green vests. So tell about the green vests. Um, the people who work with the Red Cross have very specific jobs in terms of routing people to different services, whether it's FEMA or the Red Cross or Salvation Army and different organizations that can provide various forms of support. But we were there to provide uh, spiritual care and spiritual first aid. And uh, to a large extent, it was... Uh, just watching to see who looked like they need a little bit of help because they're very long lines and often not very satisfactory outcomes. Um, You know, not enough money to really rebuild or find a friend or get back on one's feet and just to be the person who could be there to watch out who needs a little bit of help. Sometimes to diffuse a, a confrontation, sometimes to pick up a spirit, Sometimes just to bring a bottle of water or a, you know, a package of cookies and to get into a conversation just that they feel seen and known and not just another person going through a system. But yeah, that, that's what the green vests were, just the ones who are watching to see who need a little bit of help. When I bring it up from time to time, it comes in my mind and I tell a group like this, I, think, I say, I think it would be a great thing if we had an international movement where we gave out green vests that would be a sign. You know, it could happen. Look at this international movement that happened over the weekend. You see a person in a green vest with a certain insignia on it. It means this person is there, and I can go and say I need some help, and they are available to help me to figure out where to get the help, whatever it is that I need. Maybe that will be some idea that we'll identify ourselves not as Republicans or Democrats or this or that, but as people with green vests who will take care of each other. I'd like you to give the the microphone to John behind. John, because some people here don't know. John, just in a couple of words, tell people what you did last year. I went to Greece as a volunteer to help the refugees in the camps there. And um, I like what you said earlier about unconditional kindness. I, I like that phrase because... Um, when I was there, I joined a group trying to feed as many refugees as possible. And we would serve maybe 4,500 cups of hot soup every day, just working, you know, 10, 12 hours a day trying to do that. But it wasn't until the end of my last few days that I really got to meet some of the refugees, um, individuals in hopefully performs small acts of kindness for them. Fixing a flat tire, um, getting a charger for their cell phone, um, a little pair of uh, sandals for the little boy, just little things like that, um, which made, I think, a big difference, not only for me, but hopefully for the families there. And as I came back, it just... um, I realize that we can't save the world. We can't help everybody. And it's, you know, John Lennon has a quote that says, uh, we can't help everyone, but everyone can help someone. 
it's just a small little um, little saying, but it's very very profound, um, and that's what I got out of the the experience that you know we don't have to go and try and save everybody. There's just too many people suffering, but we can help the individual, the neighbor, the family, friend, the homeless, you know, people around us in their daily lives, and we don't know what kind of effect that's going to have on them and the world. But um, and, and, and that ties into this whole march and social activism and so on. There's just so much going on that sometimes we get frustrated and and uh, depressed about it, but we can help someone that's close to us in, in our own neighborhood and so on, and that will help. Uh, thank you very, very, very much. I'm also thinking as you say that that uh, I'm, uh, my sense, I'm sure everybody's sense is you're talking and John is talking about what was in New Orleans or uh, around the World Trade Building, that in, in the middle of helping out, whether it's near home or not near home, the question, questions like what's the meaning of life or what's it all about or any kind of philosophical question goes out of the head because there is something at that moment where the moment is sufficient unto itself. You're just taking care of somebody just making a soup, just finding a place to get a death certificate, just holding somebody's hand. At that moment, there aren't any pains if I don't understand the meaning of life. It, or any, uh, or There's nothing but a connection. And I think that actually there is nothing but a connection. You know, that if I really were to know something... Oh, Nancy, I, I was hopeful you were going to say something about that. <clears throat> Well, I, I love the idea of the, the little bit of help because I find it so easy to go into overwhelm thinking I can't fix everything. So I don't even know where to start and that idea of just offering a little bit of help. Or I was explaining to somebody this morning the starfish and the idea of the starfish story and it makes a difference one at a time and finding those things to hold steadfast to um, really helps stay on track instead of getting overwhelmed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People might not know what Nancy does. Well, I do several things, but one of them, I, I started a nonprofit to work with Native Americans to encourage healthy lifestyle and, and nutrition. So we did create the unimaginable story um, with bringing people from Indian reservations and working for a week with them on healthy lifestyles. And at the end of the week, they literally each swim from Alcatraz to shore. Um, both as an actual physical feat and as a metaphor for ways that they can show up and succeed in their own lives. And people go, by the way, Nancy, it, it just happened recently, the swim. October, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll remind everybody again as it's coming around. In the middle of that, if seven people go back to reservations and change how people eat, then a little bit bigger circle of people will eat better or move in different directions. You can only do what's around you. Not everybody gets to go a long distance, but John's point about you can go next door and do something. Uh, The two stories that I never tell, which I'll now tell in a very abbreviated way because that was much better than anything else, is that at one point 25 years ago or something, 
I had been um, I had been very interested in uh, intensive meditation, and I'd gone on some long meditation retreats. And as sometimes happens to people who spend a quite serious amount of time in contemplative practice, I uh, experienced um, some very, very strong energetic feelings in my body. Unusual ones. If you were uh, following the literature in the 70s and 80s, people were talking about Kundalini being aroused. And, you know, not to say that in a in a, a um, disparaging way about uh, the fact that, you know, when you go in an acupuncture, for an acupuncture appointment, you see the lines of the body that uh, look like they're all connected through energy centers. Actually, I think we have those because if you meditate uh, and you make your attention one-pointed enough, you begin to feel them in your body. It's a, as strongly as you feel your heartbeat or your pulse. It's a very amazing experience. And sometimes you have, in addition to that, all kinds of unusual body changes, like people sometimes shiver or shake or have involuntary movements. And um, It just happens. It's not enlightenment. It's actually something that happens on the way, I think, to clear seeing... And in my own experience, it's a little distracting because it lends itself to thinking that you're somewhat of a great meditator and that you've become magically enlightened. And all you've done, I think, this is my experience, I don't want to say it in a disparaging way, but it is a big deal in in the sense that it's not usual. But I have not found that it necessarily uh, leads to wisdom. It actually needs, it leads to self-preoccupation. What's going on with me? You know, and why doesn't it stop? And it's, this is really, I can't sleep, and I can't go in public meetings, and I can't pay attention. So I went to visit, um, I, I had made an appointment with Chagrad Rinpoche, who has since died, who was a venerable teacher in the Tibetan tradition, and who happened to be visiting the Bay Area, and I made an appointment, and I went to see him, and I told him my story, and I thought that he would tell me some magic mantra about uh, that I could say that would tone down my body and cool off the, all this excited feeling. And uh, I told him my whole story, and then he said, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I said a very rote answer. I, I actually didn't know what to say, so I said, well... In the practice that I do, the idea is that if your mind is clear and focused enough, you have insights enough that manifest as wisdom that expresses itself as compassion. That's what it says in the textbooks anyway, so it's a good textbook answer. But he said, no, he said, no, really. How much compassion practice do you do every day? So at that point, I was obligated to say, um, what exactly do you mean? So he said, I mean, how much do you go out in the street every day and look around and see how people are suffering? So I thought, ah, oh, see, he's mocking me. You know, he's telling uh, myself. But I don't think so. I, I, he seemed very kind. I didn't think he was mocking me. It was just a plain question. Some months later, I was in Israel for the first time. And... Uh, uh, a cousin of my husband's, who had recently visited Jerusalem, phoned him 
phoned my husband to say, oh, if you're going to be in Jerusalem, make an appointment and go see Rabbi Scheinberger. Um, he was, I met him. He teaches uh, a very, very traditional rabbi, teaches in one of the uh, yeshivas in Jerusalem. And uh, he'll be very gracious and he'll be glad to meet you. So, again, short story, we go there. We phone, he says, come. Any, any, fr- any relative of Marty Borstein is a friend of mine. So we went, and I'm uh, very sensitive to the fact that uh, he lives in a very traditionally observant area of the old city of Jerusalem. So I dressed myself, not not disguising who I am, but anyway, I dressed myself modestly in a long skirt and long sleeves and uh, uh, something covering my head because that's what women do in that community. And he's very gracious and let us in. And we sat at a dining room table where he met with his students and taught. And he sat at one end of the table and Seymour sat next to him. And I sat at the way other end. I was then, I, subsequently when I was in his apartment, which we visited many times, I was, I was the only woman I ever saw. I never saw another woman. But I had sat down way at the other end of the table. That seemed okay. And they had a conversation going on for a while about this and that, very pleasant. And um, and Cousin Marty, and at some point, uh, Seymour said, uh, and my wife, Sylvia here, teaches the Buddhist meditation, thinking, I wish he had not really (laughs) led with that piece of information. I could have met him a little bit first. And he leaned forward and he said, really? He said, I'm so interested in that. Tell me about what you teach. So I, I told him something about how I, what I teach. And then he said, so in all your meditation experience, what was the hardest time you ever had? So that's a very knowledgeable question to know to answer, ask. So I said, well, matter of fact, uh, uh, in, until fairly recently, and I said something about my uh, energetically aroused states and how bewildering they had been, which is very hard to do since English is not his first language and I don't speak Hebrew. We both speak Yiddish, but it's it's not... Um, this is complicated stuff to talk about um, in any language. So, But anyway, I explained to him what I'm saying, and he listens, and then he said... Well, um, I'm not a meditation teacher. I think that's not true. And if that's not true, that's the only thing I ever heard him said that wasn't honest. But maybe it was a form of modesty. He said, I'm not a meditation teacher, but this is what I think. He said, I think one hour of meditation a day is enough. He said, "Uh, I think the rest of the time you're supposed to go out in the street and see how much people are suffering. So that, honestly, I couldn't have made up that story. That's exactly how that happened. And I thought to myself afterwards, it's not just to moderate, modulate the amount of energetic stuff that happens. I think that the part of going out in the street and looking how really people are suffering, but looking with eyes that are open, is really what's really the practice 
that uh, I don't know how much we see all the time about how people are really suffering. You know, we don't. By the way, Krishnamurti, I want to add one more to that now. Krishnamurti, who was a mid-century teacher, used to say, a wisdom figure, used to say to people, you don't have to meditate. He, He dispensed with it altogether. He said, you don't have to meditate. Just go outside and look around. Everybody is suffering. Everybody is suffering. And to think that that really means everybody, not just people who are suffering because the culture is unjust or the economics are unjust, but everybody who has a life. I mean, how many people, while they were sitting today, thought about somebody who they love who's in a difficult position? Something they got uh, not good with them, difficult. How many people here have something about their health that's a little bit worrisome for them, at least a little bit? Everybody's got that. I think about it, if you, uh, I th- sometimes I say to people, you notice what disturbs. When we, we sat down, I said, uh, let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease. It has to make its way to that natural peace and ease under my health, my relationships, and my job, which everybody is thinking about. All. My work, my relationships, and my health, which play in, in everybody's mind all the time. And we worry about them. We worry about things not working out well for the people that we care about. And that's not a mistake. It, all, it, takes, um, it takes interest to take good care of your health and your job and your work and your livelihood and the world. And to look at everybody as a co, uh, as, a, as, a, as a team member. Like if we could look at the world and say, this is a team of human beings. This is currently the team that's on deck playing the game of keep the world alive. Everybody's taking care of their particular people in their backyard. Everybody's worrying, everybody's suffering. I read a comment, oh, it's 12. I read last week uh, some definition of human beings as worrying apes. Did you ever hear that? (laughs) That human beings are worrying apes. That's the next next step up on the evolutionary... worrying apes but we're all worrying about that things won't go the way that it'll be comfortable I really am thinking about do we get to realize that so what 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 I don't have time to say and what I want to say again next week and we'll see we'll come back and hear latest iterations of it is how are we going to move how am I going to consistently move from being trapped in my own story of what's not right in my personal life, which I not only feel I spend a lot of time on, but I need to because I'm involved in a personal life. But how am I going to not only see what's happening out there and not feel discouraged about taking steps and devote myself to it? What's going to be the bodhisattva pledge that will inspire me? One of the people said, did you get tired on Saturday? I didn't. I stood longer than I usually can, and it was a circumstance that was more demanding than usual. But I felt very buoyed up by it and not so depressed about the situation because I somehow there were all those people, and that's my world. And 
all make any sense to you at all? You okay with that? You're going to come back? <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one more thing that you could do for yourself. I just, I did you, earlier this last year, I said I was reading War and Peace. So here it is. I made it. How many people here have ever read War and Peace? It's a serious challenge to get all the way through. I think it's the longest novel ever written. It's beautiful language. It's amazing language. Two things that I now know about War and Peace that I didn't know before that I want to tell you. Uh, one of them is that it ends. All these people, Natasha and Denisov and this one and the other one and the other one, it all ties up one way or the other at the end. And it's really like, this is life. And it's life in uh, 1807 and, 18, and, and ending in 1812, after 1812, when uh, the French are beaten back. Uh, and all of these people have gotten older and people have been born and died and all this went on. And, uh, and it's written beautifully. I mean, the, the, this weekend, no, just yesterday we finished, actually, I noticed that there, there was a movie in 1956 of War and Peace. I thought, ah, I'll see what the movie was. So I, we watched it on Amazon. And uh, the book is better. But, uh, but the, there were tremendous scenes of the battles that went on. And I read about them, and... As I read about the scenes, they were really hard to read, but at least it's black and white marks on a paper. There are long, long periods in the movie where row upon row of young men are riding out or marching out to a battle. It was in the days that people, young men walked out on a battlefield and then they shot each other. That's how a war was, until one, one side decided that's enough of a shot and now we'll pull back and we'll sign the truce. Meantime, the people planning the battles don't go anywhere near there. They stay somewhere in the back. Say, okay, you go, and row after row of people come and do that. So it's stunning. The end of War and Peace, which is what I was going to really suggest to you, that you buy or get in the library, is an epilogue that Tolstoy wrote about his view about people and history and the world and how it works. And it's amazing. It's amazing. I'll bring it back and I'll read you some of the parts next week. In essence, he's amazing to me because he's talking uh, in a view like the most modern sociologist or maybe the most uh, enlightened of thinkers because he's saying nobody starts a war. It's not anybody's idea. It wasn't because Napoleon had these kind of ideas. It wasn't Napoleon's fault or somebody's fault. It was everybody's fault. That it happened so... Is everything that, would, that Napoleon, saying what he said or doing what he did or listing what he did at that time and the Tsar responding, all happened for generations of people before it, doing this and that and the other to each other. And there's no beginning. There's no beginning or end to the movements back and forth of, of humans and periodically sending out young men to kill each other. And it's such a view from, uh, as a, from some view, like some outer space view of this was what happens on, on Earth. But it's amazing prescient for uh, a person of you know, the mid-19th century. Anyway, War and Peace was written in... 1866.
150 years ago, but amazing. So if you don't mind hearing more about it, I'll bring it next week and read you some of Tolstoy about how people behave. The inside of the Buddha that people don't talk about a lot because they talk more about suffering is when the mind can't relax about what's going on. The other insight is that everything that's happening is happening because everything else that ever happened happened. And the fact that this is happening is having an effect on everything that will happen ever. That, that everything is linked to everything causally, backwards and forwards. And it so takes out the idea that anybody is the hero or the villain. You know, there are, there, there are people who behave more noticeably than other people. But, you know, uh, we're all complicit in that way. Uh, and now I sound like I'm preaching again, so really I have to stop. It is a pleasure to have you listen to me. Thank you very much that you put up with my musings. Okay, may all beings be peaceful and happy. And live safely. It could be otherwise. That's what all of those people... Mandela and Gandhi and Dorothy Day and everybody else who said something like that said it doesn't have to be this way. This isn't the right way. Let's do it another way. And when you put it on, 